from LPM. Louisville Public Media. Support for LPM Podcasts comes from the Eye Care Institute and Butchertown Clinical Trials, where they strive for diversity, equity, and inclusion within their staff, patients, and clinical trial participants. To learn more, visit butchertown.clinic. There is this saying in Japanese Zen, Zen training leaves practitioners like river stones, polished smooth over time through rubbing against each other in the turbulence of the waters. Jeanette Prince Cherry had careers in the Air Force and as an industrial engineer before dedicating her life to Zen Buddhism. A Zen priest and instructor, she divides her time between the Louisville Zen Center and the Rochester Zen Center in New York. I'm your host, Kyle Kramer, and in this episode, I sat down with Jeanette in person to learn more about Zen, how it's similar to and different from secular mindfulness, and how it provides tools and resources for mental health, resilience, and the strengthening of communities. Jeanette, welcome to the Earth and Spirit Center podcast. It is good to be with you in person here at the Earth and Spirit Center barn. It's good to be here. What I'd love to do in this conversation with you, Jeanette, is to walk our listeners through what Zen is. I think a lot of us have heard of the word Zen, but it probably feels somewhat exotic uh, here in, in a Western context. I'd love for us to learn from you a bit more about uh, what Zen is, and then we can we can engage with how Zen can provide helpful tools, especially in pandemic and post-pandemic times and uh, just changing times uh, more generally. So if we could begin with some quick context, what is your short version definition of Zen? Just a sentence or two. Okay. Um, Zen is, uh, the, the word is a Japanese word that means meditation. So it is the meditation school of Buddhism. The concentration in Zen is on sitting meditation and walking meditation. But sitting meditation, or Zazen, forms the foundation. That's the core practice. Uh, let's, if, if, if you could, could you give us some personal connection? Uh, how did you find Zen, or how did Zen find you? Uh, yeah. what, what's been your Zen journey? Um, I found Zen, I think, the way most people do through dukkha. The quick translation of that word is suffering. I was in the United States Air Force for, for eight years and left the Air Force uh, in 1993 and a year later, I was still trying to find my way as a civilian. Mm. I was 27 years old. I, I mean, I had a happy home life, a wonderful husband and great kids. But boy, I'd spent the, my entire adult life in the Air Force, and I just didn't know how to be outside of the Air Force. Is and that because really the struggling. Air Force is really structured, or it was just, I mean, what is it that was missing? I think what was, for one, I didn't know how to dress. I'd worn a, I'd worn a, a uniform my, for eight years. And even uh-huh. before then, I worked at a fast food restaurant in high school, uh-huh. and I wore, wore the, the restaurant uh, uniform. Yeah. And so I didn't know how to dress. I was uh, working as an industrial engineer and was a supervisor. I didn't, I had no idea. I, w- I would get the JCPenney catalog just to see how 
how people dress professionally. Oh my gosh! And um, I didn't know the terminology mm. um, because of the military. We had our own language, mm-hmm. and with a lot of acronyms. So I hear exactly. <laughs> and so I'm at work, and I need a, an office supply. And I called it the way what we called it in the Air Force. And the, and the office supply is, you know how if you have a binder and you use like the three-hole puncher to uh-huh. make a holes in the paper so that you can put the paper in the There's binder. There's an Air Force word for this? Well, and, <laughs> and, then, and then sometimes the, the paper will rip, those uh-huh. holes will rip, and you take the sticker hole reinforcements is I, what they're I called. I still don't know what those are called. I know what you're talking about. but Yeah, uh, okay. they're called hole reinforcements. All right. But when I went to the secretary, I called them what I always call them, paper <laughs> holes, because that's what we called them in the Air Force. <laughs> And she she just cracked up <laughs> and was like, what are you talking about? And so I went through just like what I just did with you. You mean whole reinforcements? I was horrified, absolutely horrified. <laughs> and I can't uh, wait to hear how this leads to Zen. Go ahead. <laughs> And so uh, with, I was completely stressed out from this whole transition. Mm. And I got sick, mm-hmm. had some surgery, mm. and was at home recovering from surgery, you know, feeling sorry for myself, watching TV, lying on the couch. And what I see is on Oprah, I turn to Oprah, and they have this section on meditation. Flip, I click the channel. Right past it. Uh-huh. And then I go to, like, Montel Williams' show. He has oh, no. a session on meditation. The nope, universe nope, is conspiring nope, nope. against you. Uh-huh. I, I, I flip channels again, and I go to the third talk show, the same thing. Did you start hearing the Twilight Zone music playing? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, this is something I need to pay attention to. Mm, mm-hmm. and, um, and so I went to the library and picked up books on secular meditation okay. and started Which right back away. then was I mean, not that Mainstream. No, it wasn't. It wasn't at all. This was 1994. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so there were very few books in the library on on meditation, secular meditation. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd started doing meditation. Didn't self taught or self guided. Yeah, okay. self guided meditation based on these books. Mm-hmm. And uh, wanted to know more. Read all the books in the library, and the only thing that was left were the Buddhist books. And I didn't want to. To read the Buddhist books because I still identified as Christian, even though I wasn't practicing. Right, and I, I gained enough self insight mm-hmm. to know that that wasn't that just didn't feel healthy to reject something out of hand that way. And so mm-hmm. I decided to go to the library, and I wanted to have a reason to reject Buddhism. Uh-huh. And so I, I went to the library and picked up the most Buddhist book that I could see, but not a thick one because I didn't want to be committed like that. Because <laughs> if and, you hate it, you don't want to invest 400 pages in it. <laughs> right. And so, so I picked up this book. It was What the Buddha Taught by Walpala Rahula mm-hmm. and read it and found myself in this book, found oh. the, the way I felt about life. I'd never been able to hmm. express it. Mm-hmm. And so I knew I was Buddhist. And continuing to read um, the Buddhist books, I found that I had a, a, a strong affinity for Zen. And so that's how I discovered uh, Zen. Mm. And then I started practicing, started practicing, moved to Rochester, New York, and began practicing with the Zen Center. 
didn't move to Rochester for Zen, but... My husband had a job opportunity uh, oh, okay. there. Okay. And we had the choice, you know, do we go or do we don't go? Okay. But there is like a the, vibrant Zen community there. Yeah. And okay. it's like, oh, Rochester Zen Center's there. It could yes. be, I could really get into Zen there. The icing on the cake for the Yeah. Decisions. And so, so we ended up moving. And, okay. and within two weeks, I went to my first workshop. I was going to ask, so for how long was it kind of an individual endeavor guided by books? It's like a, a year and a half. A year and a half, and then yeah. you joined? Well, no, actually, I, it was probably six months, and then I found a community, local community to sit with. Okay, okay. Even before you moved to Rochester? Even and, before I moved to and Rochester. And then another community in Rochester. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And fast forward a, a couple decades, you are now the head, the head, uh, the group leader of the Louisville Zen Center, and mm-hmm. you're still affiliated uh, and a commuter to the Rochester <laughs> yep, yep. Zen Center. Uh, so you took this really seriously, not only in terms of of commitment over time, but also taking on more and more of a teaching and, and leadership role. C- can, yeah. you, can you speak a little bit about that evolution? Well, you know, I, I knew within those first couple of weeks of practicing a meditation, I, I just knew that th- that was it for me. Really? Yeah, I And just, you don't ascri- ascribe that to the honeymoon phase of meditation? My devotion to meditation hasn't wavered since those first two weeks. Wow. And then it just, I think the way it happens in Zen, as far as leadership, is that you just keep hanging around. And, <laughs> Until <laughs> with, they promote you? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> or you're already doing it, you know, something... Something happens and you have to do this thing and, uh-huh. and you end up doing more and they trust you more and you do it more. And really the way it works is that you're already doing it by the time you get recognized uh-huh. to be doing it. Uh-huh. And so that's pretty much I think that's, that's similar, what I've seen. a similar dynamic in a lot of uh, worship communities. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, is there formal training to become a Zen teacher or is it you get the tap on the shoulder and... You have clearly have the gift, and then that's authorization enough. Yeah, yeah there is there is definitely training, mm-hmm. um, but really, it's like the cardinal precept in instructing is to not to do harm, mm. and to ensure that you have this third party. I know that there's a lot of people that that are around that that claim to be teachers, and I'm not one of those teachers. I'm more of an instructor. I don't mm. accept students, teachers in Zen accept students. Instructors, we instruct in this and that, and we can help people out, but we, we don't accept students. At least that's how we use the terminology in our tradition. Uh, um, if you could clarify, so you don't accept students, what does that mean? So people that are saying that, I want you to be my teacher. I am only going to be oh. working with you. I may... So I'm going to sit with you, and I want to you to be the one to advise me. Be my and then guru. I'm, uh-huh. Exactly. I'm, go, I'm going to open myself to whatever it is that you tell me. and like Be and, your disciple or something. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. so instead, uh, an instructor is like, here are the basic practices of Zen. Whoever shows up can learn those. I mean, would that be the difference? Yeah, and okay. I still do one-to-ones with people, mm-hmm. but these folks are not. They can go to sit with other people and to get advice from other people and... And all of that, but but um, so that's the that's a, the main difference is that people don't commit to me. And is that a, a tradition in Zen where you do commit to a, a particular individual teacher? Yes, it, it's so helpful to do that because mm. then there's not that confusion of when people go around from place to place, they can get really confused mm-hmm. with the instructions that the different teachers give, mm-hmm. even the language that the different teachers use. It can be very confusing for mm. people. Okay, and so. 
whenever they make that commitment, because the teacher's committing to them too. Okay. And so you are now, as I said, the group leader of the Louisville Zen Center. You're an active instructor at, at the Rochester Zen Center and commute back and forth. Um, you gave us a good initial you know, short definition of Zen. Can we unpack that a little bit? And uh, I quickly jumped to describing you know, Japanese connections there. But what is the history and, and I guess the geographical context uh, of Buddhism originally and then how it's spread? Yeah, and you probably ascribed it because Zen is a Japanese word. Right. So Zen, um, it springs out of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. So when the Buddha died, so he was Indian, mm -hmm. when he died, his teachings spread throughout India as well as into the countries that borders around India, including Southeast Asia as well as China. And in China, this Indian Buddhism combined with what was already there, Confucianism and Taoism, and became really intellectual and scholarly. Okay. And Zen Didn't. was a sort of rejection uh -huh. of that very scholarly, intellectualized Buddhism. Uh, Zen, the focus in Zen is on direct experience, on... Mm -hmm. It's considered to be the teaching beyond words and letters without reliance on the scriptures. Now, without reliance, that doesn't mean that the Zen doesn't use the Buddhist scriptures, but it's not a crutch. Mm. And, and in Zen, we are not confined to just a particular sutra or particular scripture, but we use teachings from the different Buddhist traditions as well as non-Buddhist traditions in whatever way that the teacher, whatever point that the teacher is trying to make to guide their students. Okay. So I, uh, I'm, I'm not a Buddhist, uh, though I have practiced Zen for a couple decades on and off. And I know that Buddhism particularly is famous for its lists. The, mm -hmm. the, the Buddhist lists, the, you know, the, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and, and the Three Poisons and so, and so forth. Um, does Zen reject all of the lists and the kind of philosophical delineations of, of, you know, finer doctrine points, does Zen accept that but just not emphasize it? Or has it actively kind of rejected that because it's too burdensome or complicated or anything like that? So again, it's, it's, um, there's no reliance on the scriptures. Okay. It doesn't mean that we don't use that. Mm -hmm. And so Zen uses the Four Noble Truths. I mean, we have Four Bodhisattvic Vows. We have, the, you know, we have our list also. Uh -huh. And we also use those. But its point is that it's not so much knowing the 12 links of causation or the Noble Eightfold Path. It's being able to realize them, mm. to function out of them through direct experience. So that is the, the emphasis, is knowing it from the inside out. Right, as you're chopping wood and carrying water. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, what are the core spiritual practices of Zen? Obviously, you say it's, it's a meditative tradition. Um, what would you say are the, the core things that makes a Zen practitioner a Zen practitioner kind of in day-to-day -day practice? And, well, and are those limited to folks who profess Zen Buddhism as their primary commitment compared to someone who, who wants to keep allegiance in, in another tradition? 
Yeah, so I'll, I'll address that one first, is yeah. that anybody can practice Zen. And <laughs> okay, from the, good. <laughs> from the Zen perspective, there's no conflict between practicing Zen and practicing another religion or no, no religion or, you know, whatever, that from the Zen perspective. Although some people I've heard from whatever, the, like the Christian perspective, there may be issues with right. them also practicing Zen. But from the Zen perspective, you don't have to commit to be a Buddhist mm-hmm. or or anything like that, because it is a practice. It is something that we do. More so than it is a, a, a doctrinal system of, of beliefs and creeds. Right, right. Okay. And then the other is, um, what is it that Buddhist, that Zen Buddhist Zen people do? Mm-hmm. Um, so the, again, sitting is the foundation. That, but we also do other practices. Mm-hmm. There's also walking meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, we do chanting Chanting the sutras is what we're chanting mm-hmm. because it goes in. That's a way of, of the, it coming in from the outside. And then our practice meets there. It's like they meet in the middle. Mm-hmm. This is uh, understanding from the outside and from the inside out. Is there an emphasis in uh, chanting on the original language uh, or as there might be in uh, reciting Quran verses, for example? Or, or is it acceptable to chant in, in translation? Yeah, we we chant chant in English. Okay. So okay. <laughs> so it's all in English because it helps to know what you're chanting. Yeah. And when you experience something in the chant, then you have words for it. Mm. Once you experience something for yourself, then you can say, "Oh, I chant that. That this is what that actually means." And we know it from the inside out you and know, from there. You know the connection I just made, Jeanette, was the emphasis in some cultures, I'm thinking particularly uh, in Persian culture right now, of memorizing poetry, mm-hmm. where there's this accepted kind of cultural practice where you not only read poetry, which is accomplishment enough, but you, you commit it to memory, such that you then have those lines that can come to you in, in moments of trial or tribulation. You, you have... You have words to accompany you through those, and mm-hmm. and it's it's a pretty common phenomenon that folks will simply walk down the street or sit, be on the street corner reciting memorized poetry. Yeah. I, I can imagine chanting could could work similarly yeah. uh, in your kind of brain function. Yeah, your your body mind it it, yeah. it it soaks in like um, walking around in the rain just soaks you right through. Exactly, exactly. Like they memorize and then live those lines of poetry, just like right. it talk. It seems like. You live and embody those those chants. That's right. And so, so there's also chanting. There, if one is in a community, um, well, there's also doing retreats. If you're living in a community or working within a community, that just working with each other, that can be very, a lot of work, <laughs> and, and uh, working with a teacher. Um, so there are different ways, and and of course, there's the mindfulness aspect in everyday activity bringing this mind of meditation into one's daily life. Mm. We're, we're going to talk more about that, so I'll, we'll put a pin in that for uh, the time being. Um, how is Zen different from, and for that matter, similar to what I'll call secular mindfulness, the, the kind of mindfulness that was probably being talked about on the Oprah show and the you know, <laughs> Montel Williams show, all the other ones that you were channel flipping on, yeah. the, the, the popular culture version? Yeah, I think, um, first of all, um, as I said, that mindfulness is an aspect of of Zen, Mm -hmm. um, of Zen practice. There is this intensive sitting that we do, 
And then there is this taking that same mind that is cultivated in that sitting into our everyday activity. That's the mindfulness aspect. Okay. So as far as the similarities and differences between Zen and, and secular mindfulness, um, I think so, the similarities, I think some of their benefits can be very similar. Um, that I think both can help one with concentration, being able to increase our ability to focus, mm-hmm. and pretty much anything that we can do with, with greater focus we'll be able to do with greater mastery. Mm-hmm. Uh, increasing our emotional stability, broadening our perspective, and which allows us to see different ways of responding, allowing us to be more creative in how we respond, mm-hmm. and decreasing stress. So those are ways I think that they're that the two are similar. Uh, what about the actual practice? Like when you sit for twenty minutes and practice mindfulness meditation versus twenty minutes of practicing Zen meditation, how, how would those be? Again, similar and different. Yeah, I, I think that especially for the for beginning Zen meditation, I think it's similar to what I've heard about secular mindfulness. It's the it the it's a concentration practice, mm-hmm. concentrating on the breath. Okay, you know, and maybe maybe in secular mindfulness that the where the attention is placed and where may be different. So we mm-hmm. in Zen, the attention is placed in the at the belly, mm-hmm. whereas. The in secular mindfulness, it could be the nose or uh-huh. or wherever. Okay, uh, and in, and in, at least in my experience of secular mindfulness, a lot of times the the attention can be, how shall we say, held, held loosely, uh, as opposed to a single pointed meditation, which is you know obviously also a practice where you're focusing on just one thing, the breath, uh, and its sensation at the nostrils, for example. Uh, in my experience, there's also this broader awareness of anything that's happening at the moment, uh, the thoughts that, that come in without the need to censor them, without the need to shut them down through, say, a mantra or something like that. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the, you're, are, you, um, are, are you describing secular mindfulness yes. or Zen? Okay, yeah. that's, the, that's the same with Zen, okay. That, okay. that we're not, and Zen, we are not, we are doing whatever it is that we're doing. So whether mm. it's when we're doing sitting meditation, it's whatever practice we're working on, and our everyday activity is whatever it is that we're doing. We're not shutting anything down or shutting anything out. Okay. So we're not trying to thought to stop thoughts because that's not going to happen. <laughs> um, we're just not attending to the thoughts, um, and by not attending to to things that aren't happening, mm-hmm. it is it's like they're not there. Zen master Hakuin's chant in praise of zazen is actually a recitation. We recite it. He says, our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. He's describing what happens in meditation and in our everyday lives that we may be having thoughts, but because we're not attending to them, it's like they're not there. It's kind of like that cat, that stray cat that comes to your house. That is, don't feed it, right? Exactly. <laughs> and we feed it by either pushing it away or mm-hmm. by engaging with it in thinking it, engaging it with it in some way. But if you want to get rid of the cat, you just have to ignore it. Yeah, you exactly. shouldn't feed it milk and you shouldn't yell at it. Right. Okay. Give it no attention whatsoever. None. Okay. Either positive or negative. It's the same way with thoughts mm-hmm. that come into the mind in meditation. Or distracting things like we're doing a task in our everyday lives and then some other little thought comes up that's irrelevant to whatever it is that we're doing. Mm-hmm. It could be relevant, and we just park it. So you're not trying to you know, force it away. Right. You're just saying, okay, there's a thought, but 
just not going to give it all my attention right now. Yep. Okay. Yep. And so that's sounds like it's very similar to how thoughts are dealt with in in secular mindfulness. Well, and I should be clear, I do not consider myself an expert uh, representative of secular mindfulness. So uh, (laughs) listeners who know far more than me are probably cringing at this point. Uh, Apologies. (laughs) But I will say say a few words that I think are the differences between Zen and secular mindfulness. In Zen, there is this emphasis on doing this practice, this the sitting and moving meditation, moving as in our everyday lives, Mm -hmm. meditation, for the sake of all beings, not just for our own particular benefit, but for anyone and everyone. Okay. We we need to come back to that. I really want to unpack that. All right. Yeah. And then another one is that we do this within an ethical framework. So we we have the 16 precepts that Mm -hmm. we worked with. And so... um, What would be a a few examples of those 16? um, So the first one... I resolve not to kill, but to cherish all life. Mm. And killing is not just, you know, I'm going out there and killing Kyle over here. The killing could also mean killing time. Oh. It could be um, killing um, by not allowing people to be who they are. For instance, racism, sexism, having something in one's mind about the person that's in front of you and... Treating the person from that perspective rather than the person that's actually in front of you. That, there's a killing in that that's or a, a violence. Killing because they're not, that, that person's dead. That, that person's not alive. You've they're made them less person. than a human being. Yeah. So <sighs> there's quite a lot that goes into the consideration in these precepts. Wow, what a spin on context. thou shalt not kill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And so that's, a, that's one. Another one I think that is the most difficult for people is I resolve not to speak of the faults of others, but to be understanding and sympathetic. And then it's companion one. I resolve not to praise myself and disparage others, but to overcome my own shortcomings. Yeah, those are hard. That's hard. Pretty, it's like as soon as you no start talking about... No wonder you have to meditate, it. right? <laughs> so this is the ethical framework in which we work. Because it's someone that practicing secular mindfulness, they can be attentive, highly concentrated, completely focused on robbing your house. (laughs) Mindfully. (laughs) Mindfully. They can do that completely (laughs) mindfully. Uh And so that's a big difference. And then the the final difference is this matter of awakening, awakening to our true nature. Uh, That is, um, in Zen, what we are working towards. It's seeing through this illusion of I, me, and mine, this separate person. Mm. And seeing through that, which is a big deal. So those are the big differences I can see between Zen and, and mindfulness. Well, let's talk about Zen as a practical set of tools for navigating difficult times. We obviously, goes without saying, we've all been through a difficult uh, 16 months or so with a pandemic. 
uh, and I would I would even say not just difficult, but for many, most of us probably traumatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that I've never been through a pandemic before. I've never been locked up in my house for for weeks on end. Uh, how did Zen help you and maybe other practitioners you know navigate the the pandemic and all that came with it? And and I would say the the post pandemic, the stresses of the post pandemic world as well. Yeah, yeah. I was just having this conversation with a um, a member of the community, and we were. We were just like both of us thanking our lucky stars that we had this practice mm, to mm-hmm. to see us through this pandemic. Yeah, um, I think for, for me that having this practice allowed me to remain grounded mm. in this moment and what is the fact that I'm alive now and I'm healthy now, and all I have is the information that of the scientists as to what to do and what not to do. Mm-hmm. And so I my mind less went off into fear, reactions, and, and um, being paralyzed by fear. Right. And, and also fear of the unknown, because there was so much we didn't understand about COVID early on. Yeah. And all, we, all, I, all I could do is, all right, so this is what the scientists say. What really makes sense for me? For instance, one of the things that just I felt like I, I wanted to be, to, to stick as closely to the guidelines as possible. But one thing that I, I knew that was not within my within my whole being to do mm-hmm. was going to the grocery store and sanitizing every package that I brought into the house. Right. I just couldn't I knew I wasn't going to do that. Yeah. So I just made sure I didn't put anything on the counters and I just put it in the cabinet and didn't touch that stuff for a while or I just may not anything that I that, it, that was like shelf stable, I would just put away mm-hmm. and not touch it for a while. Uh-huh. Or, and so, and being realistic about what I felt like I could do. Um, so I, that, I think that really, this practice helped me in, in that way to be realistic about what I could do, what I was willing to do, and to, um, to allay my fears. Yeah, it's so interesting you say that because I, I have had a similar experience in which I thought a lot about how COVID really forced us into this crash course on risk assessment and, and weighing the pros and cons of various behaviors. Like in my family, we decided that we were going to keep seeing my parents who are elderly, who are health compromised in some ways. And we thought long and hard about that with them mm-hmm. to make decisions together about what protocols we would use to keep them safe as, as much as we could. But, and you know, thanks be to God, uh, nothing came of that. And we had a, a good year of still being able to visit and uh, have a common pod, I suppose that that's yeah. what they, they call yeah. that now. But it was hard because what we came against again and again was that we were just reminded by COVID, I think, that there is no such thing as a risk-free life. You get in a car and you are taking a calculated risk uh, against accidents and so forth. Uh, I happen to be a rock climber, so I'm always taking calculated risks. I sometimes have to justify to family members. <laughs> but this pandemic was so huge that it, it seemed to make all that risk assessment go crazy, go haywire yeah. on some level. Yeah. I mean, and, and one of the risks 
that I and both I and my my local son were were not willing to take was um, whereas we were on the opposite end of that spectrum. Whereas my son is a photojournalist, mm-hmm. he was out there, you know, photographing the protests. Oh gosh, he was yeah. he was in crowds of people. He protected himself as best as he could, but was still exposed. It, it was it was he was exposed. And he did not want to bring it home to me. Right. He didn't, he, or he didn't, not that he lives with me, but he didn't want to bring it to me. Yeah. And despite all of his, his efforts at protecting his health, when he was photographing what was going on during the insurrection, that's when he got COVID. Oh, gosh. So, but, Is he okay? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, he, the, he's long haul stuff, but, oh, but, um, but yeah. So he's very, he's still very cautious even, even now, even though things have opened up a bit, he's still... He's still quite cautious because he doesn't don't want to get the next best thing. Yeah, but <laughs> COVID <laughs> point <next> two. Worst <laughs> thing. <laughs> so. But it sounds like what I think I heard you say there is that Zen both gave you some clarity as you thought through the risks involved in, yeah. in your decision making process, but also, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, uh, maybe some equanimity around the choices you did make. Yeah, yeah. And then with the, all the, the Zen communities being on Zoom mm-hmm. and attending sittings that I didn't have to run myself, it was, it was very nice. <laughs> to, I could face the wall, we faced the wall. Yes. Right? And so I could face the wall without having to ring a bell or something for most of the sittings. And having that structure to the day. So sitting with Zen communities on Zoom uh, provided that structure and so even though we still the, the days all ran together, I'd heard the expression that every day was Blur's Day. <laughs> I've never heard that. Yeah, and Blur's so, and even, but as long as, you know, 7 to 8 a.m., 7 to 8 p.m., I know what I'm doing during those times. So, mm. so it also gave you some structure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I felt the same way. I'm a, a fairly regimented person in, in, in various ways. And yeah. as much as my life was thrown into turmoil with, work stuff and you know, family and other relationship stuff, like everyone's, the spiritual practices were and have remained an anchor mm-hmm. in, in an otherwise pretty chaotic time. Yeah. And that what it didn't provide, because Zen isn't going to be a be-all for everybody. It can't fix everything? Can't it, fix everything. Uh, One of the things was, was I was so surprised that I felt that I heard, heard it called skin hunger missing hugs because it was just me and my cat you know (laughs) and he doesn't really hug me you know he's really sweet being a cat and all yeah yeah. (laughs) and uh you know i guess it's you know it doesn't have thumbs you know i don't know (laughs) but what's your cat's name tom (laughs) jimmy tom turkey jimmy tom turkey okay and so but so yeah i miss the hugs that Mm. of giving hugs and and receiving hugs and i know that some people in the sangha had issues with depression during this time. Right. And I think that Zen can help with that, mm-hmm. but it's no substitute for medication. So mm-hmm. some folks needed, needed medication. Well, I would think that Zen in some ways would give you greater self-awareness so you knew, oh gosh, I am struggling here. Oh gosh, right. I I probably do need to see someone about this, or a, or be be medicated, or, yep. or have some intervention. Yeah, and I think I think I think for people that maybe have mild depression, mm-hmm. then I think 
Zen can give them the space to see what may be behind that. And then for those, that, and it may help ameliorate the, it some to some degree, mm-hmm. but it also gives that space to know, to see, okay, I need to do something about this. Mm-hmm. And I can't do this on my own. And so I, I need to go to a doctor and, right. and get that taken care of. So it does do that. It's interesting because I, I think there's a, what I would call a misconception out there that Zen is all about really strict discipline. You've got the stick in sittings. And yet what I, I think I hear you describing is a practice that actually bolsters your own self-compassion. Or, or did so during this really difficult time. Yeah, I think people will look at Zen and the discipline of Zen, including the stick, as being really cold and unfeeling. Mm. And that's just not been my experience with even the stick itself. It's a compassion stick. That's, I mean, it really is. It's, uh-huh. Or we call it an encouragement stick. It's not. And for our listeners who don't, uh, we're talking insider baseball here. What is the stick? (laughs) So the stick is, in our tradition, except during retreats, it is a device that has been used, in fact, been used for hundreds of years to assist meditators in their meditation. So it helps with sleepiness. Mm -hmm. It helps with uh, release tension in the body. And it's just a quick wrap on the shoulders. Yes, it's Uh, just a, and it's, you are being this acupuncture meridian Mm. that's being stimulated, it stimulates alertness and relaxation. Okay, so not corporal punishment, just uh, an alertness aid. But I interrupted you. You were saying Zen is seen as this this disciplined kind of structured practice. Yeah. In in fact, there was someone who said something to me about, you know, that we had on our website of Louisville Zen Center this list of all the kind of rules of the Zendo. And they were like, you know, that's a lot of stuff, and that can be a real turnoff for people. And and it's like, but the structure is there to allow you to let go, to not oh. just you, but everyone to let go in the same way. So the structure actually serves freedom in some way. Yep. That's exactly what it's for, is so that you can let go of what to do, what somebody else is doing. We're all doing the same thing. And we just flow with each other. We don't rub against each other unnecessarily. Okay. You know, I I can relate to that because, as I mentioned, I I have a number of routines and disciplines in my own life. Uh, My family members sometimes less than charitably call them ruts. And sometimes, or more than sometimes, they're, they're correct. And yet they provide me, at least as I experience them, they're not obsessive things I have to do or else mm-hmm. something will happen to me. But it is just a way to not have to create my day anew every single day. I know I'm going to do such and such from this time to this time. And that feels very freeing to me. Yeah, it feels freeing to me. I've heard one, I can't remember the jazz musician who said this. He was talking about, improvisation Mm -hmm. and he said there's no freedom and freedom the freedom is found in form master the forms the scales and the this and all of that and they use that in their improvisation and it's the same way in zen that we have this form 
it's like, and I, I call it a, it's like a guideline. My son um, homeschooled, we've had that conversation. And one of the books that he read was Little House on the Prairie. And they talked about having, because they're out in the prairie and they would have these snows and whiteout conditions, uh-huh. and having a rope tied from like the door of the house to the door of the barn. So right. e- in the winter, they can still go out and feed and take care of the animals without getting lost in the snow because it would, the whiteout conditions would be so, so bad that, they, that if they let go of that rope, they could be lost, mm-hmm. and they, they can't find their way back. Ten, ten feet from the barn and still yeah, lost. Or, or, yeah. or it could be three feet from the rope or three feet from the house, yeah. and they won't be found until spring. And so this guideline, just hold on to this guideline, and they've got the other arm. They can get where they need to go. Mm-hmm. They can do what they need to do. And that's what all of the kind of the, the forms of Zen is about, is to give that freedom so that we can do what we need to do without rubbing against other people and rubbing against our own will. Mm, okay. And yet there's still plenty of ways to get to the barn, even as you still hold the rope. There's, yeah. there's not just, doesn't sound too overly prescriptive. Yeah. And, and I think too, it's, I think some, sometimes that can be, you know, for people that are new to Zen and wonder, you know, why do we have to do it this way? Why do we have to do it that way? And in, in many cases, when you do it, and you do it enough times, you find out the why mm-hmm. from the inside out. Well, I'm, Direct experience. Yeah, and I'm not sure exactly why I'm making this connection, but I have read uh, the social work uh, guru, uh, Brene Brown, and she has this exercise in which she asks you to winnow down your value set to just two from a huge list of find two that you feel capture your main life commitments. And I tried to do that exercise. I found it tremendously difficult because, of course, there's all kinds of other things that I hold as values. But I remember her framing this in, a, I think, a podcast conversation or one of her books where she says, if you have 30 values, mm-hmm. you have no values. Yeah. Um, and if, if you're forced to really winnow them down, then those are real priorities for you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Those are the rope, <laughs> to, yeah, the, to, the, the rope. to the barn. I'd love to move, if we could, Jeanette, to the question of community. This has already come up several times in our conversation. Uh, you teach in a community and that pretty much from the beginning has been the context for your practice. But I do think it's easy, particularly in kind of an individualistic American culture, to characterize Zen as this individual practice that focuses on my enlightenment and so forth. That's not my experience of, I think, Eastern traditions generally, that they tend to emphasize the collective perhaps more than the individual and as I understand it, even one of the three jewels of, of Zen is, is the Sangha. You've already mentioned that, the community. So what role does community play in spiritual practice in the Zen tradition? Yeah, um, so, and it goes all the way back to the Buddha and the importance of community. Ananda, which was uh, one of his chief disciples, upon this realization, he was like, he said to the Buddha, spiritual friendship or Sangha 
is oh is that what that means yeah okay yeah. he said sangha or spiritual friendship is half the spiritual life and the buddha said not so ananda not so spiritual friendship is the whole of the spiritual life and and zen recognizes that too people in zen primarily work within community okay um we sit together, we eat together, we walk together, we work together. There is the saying in Japanese Zen, Zen training leaves practitioners like river stones, polished smooth over time through rubbing against each other and the turbulence of the waters. And that's how we work. We find out our rough edges by whatever upsets us when we're working in, in community. Sounds kind of like marriage. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Never thought of myself as a polished river stone. <laughs> so we find out about ourselves mm. by working in community. And we find out whatever our rough spots are, whatever it is that irritates us, that's something that, that's really something that really we need to be working on. That's something that we need to be aware of. And so it's not just an ethical commitment, like I practice Zen and I have these commitments, therefore I shall care for the community. But it is, I can't grow spiritually without companionship. Yeah. Interesting. And, and their community can act as models of how to be, I mean, in both directions. I'm so grateful for the models that I have and have had and mm-hmm. still have. There are people in my life that I practice with that I want to, I want to grow up and be just like them. <laughs> And then there are people who are like, no, I don't want to be anything like that. And yet there's still practitioners and everybody, and there's this understanding that we're all working on ourselves. Even yeah. the saying in Zen is that even the Buddha is still working on himself. I'm so glad to hear that because in my experience uh, around a lot of, I would say, pretty highly evolved people uh, spiritually, uh, I don't count myself among the, them, but almost everyone I can think of still has some pretty glaring growing edge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you do? Yeah, yeah <laughs> I see. And I, it, that's, my, that's been my experience too, teachers included, uh-huh. and they're still working on themselves. And, and whenever I run into somebody's pile of unresolved stuff, um, first of all, you know, for me to see it, that means, you know, some of that is in me too. Uh-huh. But I also have to remind myself that don't, they're still working on themselves too. Yes, so. as, as we all are. And, and me too, you know. Mm-hmm. And and that's what's nice about working with a teacher is that the teacher can see things that I that I might not necessarily see myself. Mm. Okay. Uh, one more question about this idea of community or, or focus on others rather than yourself. I'm thinking right now about the really just beautiful idea in Zen of the Bodhisattva, the the spiritual master who as I understand it, basically devotes her life or his life to the service of others. And I know you had mentioned earlier the, the four bodhisattvic vows, and I, I can never remember all of those, but I, I, I do know that the first one is something like the number of wait, sentient beings are infinite, I vow to save them all, or some version of that. So right at the heart of the tradition, there's this built-in focus on helping others. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can speak to this what I consider at least to be a paradox of this extremely inward contemplative focus on, on, on your own life uh, or your own interior life 
and yet at the same time, this tradition of, of selfless service to yeah. others. Let's yes. talk about the, the bodhisattva phenomenon or vow. Yeah, so a bodhisattva, a bodhi means wisdom or okay. enlightenment or awakening, mm-hmm. and sattva means being. Okay. Um, so this is someone who is dedicated to the awakening of all. And it could just be a Joe Schmo. It doesn't have to be some, some spiritual genius. It could be the Joe Schmo like me or, or like you, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's just someone who is dedicated to the welfare of all beings. Okay. Okay? And the way that one can understand, and I'll go to the vows of a bodhisattva, and these are, these are inner vows that have just been expressed in words. And so you may name the first one, and the way that is said is, all beings without number, I vow to liberate. Mm. And so there are four such vows, all of them all sounding equally impossible. <laughs> and there was this one Zen teacher who said, and which I found it so helpful in the way that they explain these vows. And they, he said that the first vow is achieved through the second vow. And then the second vow is achieved through the third vow. Hmm. And the third vow is achieved through the fourth vow. And so the first vow, again, all beings without number, I vow to liberate. Of course, the question is, well, how do I do that? Mm -hmm. Well, we do that through the second vow. Endless blind passions, I vow to uproot. Okay, Mm -hmm. also sounding equally impossible. Mm -hmm. So how do I do that? The third vow, Dharma gates, Beyond Dharma means teaching. Dharma gates beyond measure, beyond measure. I vow to penetrate. Okay. All right. Sounds also very hard. Equally impossible, yes. <laughs> so how do I do that? This fourth one better be good, right? The great way of Buddha, I vow to attain. Buddha means awakening or awake or enlightenment. Mm-hmm. And so this understanding of enlightenment, of coming to awakening to whatever degree that one might free themselves of this sense of separation and, and functioning and acting mm-hmm. out of that, mm-hmm. to that degree, we become a better spouse, a better parent, a better worker, a better activist, mm-hmm. because we become more intimate. There's the separation between self and other breaks down. Right. So the two go together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that fourth one really just encompasses them all. Yeah. You, or those vows, I should say, and the paradoxical quality of those leads me to ask another question, which is exactly that, the role of paradox in the Zen tradition. You have this um, idea of the, I'll mispronounce it, of course, the koan, uh, the unsolvable riddle, the sound of one hand clapping. What is the unique role of, of paradox in Zen? Well, first of all, because paradox is the way things are. You know? <laughs> oh, darn. It's <laughs> just reality. Yeah, okay. it's just reality. And what it does is oh, it, it gets us outside of our box. What box? So whatever box, the way that we would habitually think and respond. Uh-huh. And it allows us to see the lines of our box. So that we know, okay, this is how I typically operate. There's a bigger world out there. There's other ways of responding. There's other perspectives. And there are other options that are available. So in this line of thinking, one hand can't clap. 
But in a broader way of thinking, that may be possible on some level. Yes. Okay. And it just depends on how you define things. A lot of it has to do with how we define. See, I always thought that these riddles, these koans, were meant basically to break your brain so that you, you couldn't be linear and rational in your appropriation of spiritual truth. Is that not true? That's uh, that's also true. Oh, okay. I mean, okay. It, no, I mean, it's, it's not so much break your brain, but it, it it allows you to think outside of your usual. Okay. Yeah, because um, yeah, I guess spiritual insight is not paint by numbers. Uh, no, <laughs> no, uh, no. <laughs> Darn. <laughs> but but it but it also doesn't get rid of that. It doesn't. It's still there. Mm-hmm. The numbers and. The, the lines are still there, mm-hmm. and so you just have more options as to how to respond in, mm. in situations. Yeah, so in the summer months, you don't have to hold the rope on the way from the house to the barn. Yeah, but you could. <laughs> you could if you okay. wanted to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, as we close here, Jeanette, is there anything that you might share with our listeners, especially those who are new to Zen, that they may adopt into their own spiritual lives or practice? Is there one single practice that you could recommend someone start with if someone wants to start to accrue the benefits of Zen? I think the one practice that I would recommend, and it would be the breath practice of just sitting down in some comfortable way, not too comfortable because we can get quite relaxed and, and you want to be both relaxed and alert. So not sleepy comfortable. Yeah, not sleepy comfortable, but sitting in some way that's comfortable Mm -hmm. and attending to the feel of the breath there in the belly as you're sitting there. Changing the rhythm of your breathing or no? No manipulation of the breath at all, just allowing it to be Mm -hmm. and being attentive to that. And one way of anchoring the mind in that is by counting the breaths. Okay. So counting the entire length of the inhale as one, and then the exhale, two, inhale, three, and counting like that all the way up to 10, Okay. returning to one when you get to 10, because we're not going anywhere, there's no goal except oh. to be there, <laughs> and to just... Do that. Just mm. is this word that we use in Zen that is like the hardest thing in the world. <laughs> no kidding. I, I mean, how hard is it to count to 10, right? And yet I, I uh, often use this practice myself, and I will find myself up at 18, 19, yeah. and it's just, oh, there's there's my indicator light that yep. my attention wandered. Yep, yep. And so, and to be kind, to be kind to ourselves when that mm. does happen, mm-hmm. be, when it happens. Yeah. When my son adopted this puppy, she's now like two years old. But I remember, I thought, what is he thinking? Why would he adopt a puppy? A puppy, brand new, fresh from the oven puppy. And and he's trying to train her to use the paper. Mm-hmm. And he was moving the paper, trying to move the paper slowly to the door to train her to go outside. And in that training, whenever she would wander off the paper, he'd pick her up and put her back onto the paper. Uh-huh. And then she'd wander off and she'd just patiently pick her up and put her back onto the paper. If he yelled at her, she would just go running off and she wouldn't know what he wanted. And she would just be afraid. And so 
all he could do was patiently pick her up and put her back on the, on the paper. And whenever she did go on the paper, he would rub her and, you know, great job, great job. And then, you know, puppies, you know, just a few minutes later, yeah. she was showing the signs. And that's what we have to do with ourselves, with this kindness, with this gentleness. Because if we're hard on ourselves, we're not going to want to sit. We don't need somebody else telling us what to do. So to just be kind and gently bring the mind back and start over at one. I think that story illustrates how masterful you are as a teacher, or as you say, as an instructor, because you just likened us to unhouse trained puppies. And I feel pretty okay about that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my. Uh, Jeanette, thank you so much for your, your generous teaching here and just for the example of your practice. How can people learn more about Zen generally, and particularly how they can connect with you and the, the places where you teach and practice. Okay. So I, I am I'm here in Louisville for now, <laughs> going back and forth between here and Rochester Zen Center. Um, so to connect with Louisville Zen Center, they can go to louisvillezen.org, and you can contact me directly through louisvillezen.org. Mm-hmm. And then for those that also are interested in working with a teacher, because there are two teachers at Rochester Zen Center that they can connect with. Rochester Zen Center is rzc.org. Rochester's next introductory workshop is sometime in in August. And it may be hybrid. They've been on Zoom up until now, but I think they're wanting to to try to make their next workshop to be an in-person one. And they can get if, and for people that may be going there, they'll get the atmosphere, the whole Zen environment, the, mm-hmm. you know, of an in-person yeah. there. Well, uh, Jeanette, thank you so much for your time and, and your wisdom uh, and blessings to you. The Earth and Spirit Podcast is a production of the Earth and Spirit Center, a nonprofit interfaith spirituality center in Louisville, Kentucky, devoted to cultivating a flourishing world through contemplative spiritual practice. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of the Calliopeia Foundation, whose mission is to reconnect ecology, culture, and spirituality through grant making, education, and media initiatives. Joe Brown is our audio engineer, and I'm your host, Kyle Kramer. To learn more about the Earth and Spirit Center, please visit our website, www.earthandspiritcenter.org. Support comes from Vision Zero. On foot or behind the wheel, safety is a shared responsibility. And Vision Zero Louisville believes zero roadway fatalities is the only acceptable amount. Their mission is to create safe roads by design, engineering solutions, and education. More information at visionzerolouisville.org.